Well, again, take your Bibles and turn to uh, Galatians, the fifth chapter. And as you're doing, as you're doing that. I just want to remind you of those two hymns that we sang about the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the one kind of a formal hymn. <clears throat> oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Do you know that deep, deep love of Jesus? That love that strikes down to the very core of your being. And then that more exuberant hymn. I'm so glad that Jesus loves me. Is that your testimony here this morning? That you are the beloved of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd like to ask you then again to continue turning in your Bibles to Galatians, the fifth chapter. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our study of this passage of Scripture. Uh, we are now coming into what really is the third division of those works of the flesh that the Apostle Paul has been kind of working through in this passage. Uh, you might have recognized by now that we are pretty much beyond what I would call the doctrine or the teaching uh, element of this uh, epistle, although we can't say that too formally. But Paul now is moving to those more practical aspects of the Christian life. And that's why he mentions here, again, the works of the flesh. And you might remember that we've been defining the works of the flesh in every one of our studies so far. And the works of the flesh, you remember, are those actions, those attitudes and actions, uh, those beliefs and behaviors that spring from our own sinful hearts and sinful nature. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, you remember, makes this very clear in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, when he says, For out of the heart proceeds all these wicked thoughts and all these wicked actions and deeds. And so again, it's the, 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 the root of the matter is the heart. And so what we must deal with when we come to the gospel is the reality that God in the gospel gives to you and me a new heart. He redeems us. He regenerates us. He puts a new heart within us. Again, the great promise of the uh, new covenant given there in the Old Testament. Well, what we're going to do here this morning as we uh, get back to Galatians chapter 5, we're going to consider now that third category of sins that Paul mentions. And these are what are known primarily as social sins, social sins. Remember, we started out this uh, study of the works of the flesh by, by noting that Paul gives in the King James four sins that are related to sexual sins, four actions that are related to sexual sins. The next two, and we looked at this in the past two weeks, was the, the reality that Paul speaks to us about religious sins. And those religious sins, you remember, were idolatry and witchcraft. I found it very interesting in this past week, more than once, in the matter of conversation, uh, individuals had said to me here in the congregation, individuals had noted to me that when they thought about witchcraft, they did not think of witchcraft as something of a bygone age, something that they had to be kind of brought up to speed on, so to speak. They didn't see witchcraft or witches by way of the, the pointy hat and the wide brimmed hat and, and maybe some old woman uh, hovering over a, 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 a kettle of witches brew or anything like that. No, I've had conversations with, with some of you here that, that realize that uh, the, the reality of witchcraft in, in the day and age in which we live. And this is why the Apostle Paul classifies, this is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul classifies it as a religious manifestation of the works of the flesh. These things of witchcraft and sorcery, as strange as they may sound to some, these things are still with us today. And you may remember last week what we tried to do is we looked at that particular manifestation of the flesh, we saw in the treatment of the various passages of Scripture, three things that kind of bubble to the surface. 
that through witchcraft or sorcery, through this religious aspect of the, of the works of the flesh, at least three things were, were, were seen. Number one, it was an attempt to gain some type of information, some type of spiritual information, this seeking out of a necromancer, this seeking out of a medium. And we saw again that we see in the word of God everything that we need for life and godliness. If you want to know anything about spiritual reality, if you want to know anything about what God has for your future, look into the word of God. He'll give you again everything that you need to live in this life. He will show you what again your end will be. You will come to the end of your days in great, in great hopefulness and great happiness that in your next moment after you die, you will see God. I was thinking that passage of scripture this morning from, from the book of Job. The worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Amen. You see, you don't need to go to these mediums. You don't need these, these things of sorcery. And the other thing that we saw, not only was there looking for information, there was also that attempt to have influence or power over individuals. And we saw that, again, primarily by way of what, uh, of what Balak tried to enlist Balaam for, to again have that influence to, to curse Israel. And there was no cursing of the people of God, you remember? And what we looked at, again, by way of a contrast to that, was the ability for you and I to have impact in people's lives through the preaching or the, or the sharing of the gospel. What greater spiritual influence can you have in somebody's life than to bring them from darkness into light? What greater influence can you have to those ones that you love, who you want to see with you eternally in heaven, to set before them the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so again, by way of influence, what, what is more influential than the power of the gospel of Christ? And then you remember that last thing we looked at, and again, it was because witchcraft was really that Greek word there for, 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 uh, for, for drug use, pharmakeia. We, uh, we discussed that to some, to some extent. And one of the things that we saw by way of drug use in our, in our present culture, but it goes back to ancient cultures as well. The drug use was oftentimes connected with sorcery and witchcraft. But in our present context, how do we see it? Usually it's for some type of indulgence, living in some form of excess, and what we said last week, and I hope it resonated with you, that God offers you something more than just indulgence in the things of the flesh. God offers to you the satisfaction of the soul. And so again, this is how all these things are contrasted. Well, what I want to do here this morning is I want to kind of follow that same pattern. I want to set before you these works of the flesh that Paul is going to lay out for us. And then I want to contrast them with the things that God is giving and providing for each and every one of us. And we'll do that. But before we get into that, let's read the passage of Scripture. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Again, I hope that this is something this text is is, is maybe even beginning to uh, be uh, lodged in your memory, and maybe you can even begin to say it by heart. But uh, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, the Apostle Paul writes this, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, Envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm very much aware that if you have a newer translation, as we came down in the verse 20, some of these words are going to be very different, and some of you might got lost as we were reading these things through. What we're going to do today is we're going to touch on the, uh, the, uh, the way that these words are translated, both in the King James and in these newer translations. But what I want you to see primarily is this. The next 
eight sins that the Apostle Paul lists are sins, manifestations of the flesh, that affect the social life of the individual Christian, but also the social life of the church. These next eight manifestations of the flesh have the potential to wreak havoc within a congregation. These next manifestations of the flesh not only have the potential to wreak havoc in a congregation, they can be ruinous within a family structure. They can also bring much by way of disaster to society as well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at these eight manifestations of the works of the flesh. However, we're going to break them down into two categories. We're going to consider the first four this week, the next four next week. And what's interesting is that there's a natural division of these eight descriptive terms that are given. And the natural division is something like this. The four that we're going to look at today are those sins of personal animosities that we might have one toward another. Again, hatred, variance, uh, 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 emulations and wrath, or hatred, strife, jealousies, or in wrath, or outbursts of anger. These are all those elements of personal animosities that sometimes we are plagued with and sometimes manifest themselves in a very destructive way within a social setting. And I'm emphasizing our congregational life particularly because I want you to know and understand if I can say this without, without, without any uh, sense of, of, of using excessive words here, what we have as the body of Christ in this little place is something that we should value and esteem, that we should thank God for. Amen. You know how blessed it is to have a congregation where there is no undercurrent of conflict and, and, and hatred and animosity. Do you know how, how, how blessed we are now that we're not uh, divided into all kind of various factions and, and cliques? And speaking of fa factions and cliques, what we're going to see next week is that, the, is that the next four sins or works of the flesh that are manifest there, those are works of factions and, again, these ideas of groupings together. So that what you're seeing in those next four uh, works of the flesh are the things where we have this, what might be called a party spirit. It's this group over here against that group over there. And I want you again to be very, very grateful that in this little congregation, we don't notice those things. I don't see those things uh, present among us. And I'm very grateful for that. So what I want to do here today then is I want to take a look, as I said before, at this passage of Scripture. And we're going to look at the first four uh, social uh, uh, manifestations of the works of the flesh that we see here. Notice again here what we have in verse uh, in verse uh, twenty: uh, hatred, very excuse me, hatred, uh, variance, or the word strife, uh, emulations, or the word jealousies and wrath. And those are the four that we're going to look at here today. So by God's grace, uh, we're going to take a look at each one of these things. Now, as I said before, uh, we're going to uh, do this in a way of uh, description and then contrast. Uh, one of the things that uh, we're dealing with in this section of Scripture is the fact that we have a lot of words that need to be described and defined. And we don't want to we don't we want to do more than just describe and define words. We also want to be able to to make sure that we don't fall into the to the very sins that are being mentioned here. But we also want to be able to present this in such a way as to see the grace of God manifested towards us. And we will see that as we work through this passage as we work through this passage of scripture. And so the apostle Paul here is emphasizing this aspect of the work of the flesh. 
Do you remember what I said a few weeks ago about how we find the primary antidote to the works of the flesh in this passage of Scripture? Do you remember what Paul said in, in, in verse 16 of this fifth chapter? If we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking in the Spirit is the very means that God has given to us in order to not be waylaid or set aside by these particular sins. And so this idea of walking in the Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit is going to be very, very important for us. As a matter of fact, when we get to the idea of the contrast here, what we're going to see is that every one of these sins, every one of these manifestations of the flesh are contrasted by way of the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to take a look at that. We're going to develop that. And so again, before I just give you all this introductory, uh, introductory matter, uh, let's get specifically to the matter at hand here. And so what I want you to see here then are these four manifestations of the works of the flesh. And the first manifestation that we have here is this word for hatred. This word for hatred. Now this word is, uh, again, it's a very, if I can say it this way, it's a very visceral word. It's a word that strikes at the, very, uh, at the very center of who we are. It's not that hatred of mere dislike or, or mere annoyance. It's a hatred that really, spring, that really goes down deep within us. And, and sadly, we probably all know that type of hatred. We probably all know by way of experience what it is to have just a, just a, a, a visceral hatred for something or for someone. Now, again, we have to, I, I, even as I hear myself say that, I want to be careful. That should not mark the people of God. We understand that. But by way of a human emotion, I think we can all identify that, uh, identify with that, either with something that's happened in the past or something that we need to, we know that we need to be uh, watchful of. And this word hatred, again, we might say it this way. It's a, it's a word that is not only, uh, not only has a, 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 a current in our day, but it's, it's been, it's been a word that's been uh, in, uh, in human experience uh, ever since the creation of man. And one of the things that we see about this word hatred is that in the Greek world, the world in which Paul was writing, in the Greek world, that word hatred really had three different ways of manifesting itself. And in that Greek or that ancient world that it manifested itself, there are still those manifestations today. And the first way in which we see in the, in the, uh, in, in the world in which Paul lived, this word for hatred uh, being manifested was that kind of hatred that we understand and see in our day, even as what we would call class hatred. Again, this idea that there are people who have a hatred for those who maybe have something more than them. It's that idea that so oftentimes takes place in a society where societies fracture and even break out into open warfare. Plato said, again, within every city, there is a civil war that goes on between those who have and those who have not. And so this idea of hatred, again, is something that's very, very common to the human experience. And we're not surprised by that because that's what these works of the flesh are. These works of the flesh are those manifestations of our fallen nature, both by attitude and action, behavior and belief, and, and, uh, sorry, belief and behavior. And so again, we're not surprised when we see these things breaking out either in the ancient world or in our, in our own world today. So much of our public strife is really based on this kind of class, uh, uh, class animosity and class hatred that we see. So much goes on, again, even in our own world, even in our own nation. How close we seem to be in our own nation to be on the verge of just, of just serious fracture and potentially even, even warfare. We hope and we pray that that never happens in our land. 
But again, we see that, uh, that the, by, by the way of the natural hate, hatred that's in man and where we are at as a society, it would not surprise us if these things happen. And so there is that natural hatred, what we might call class hatred. The next way in which this word manifested itself in the ancient world is something that, again, we're going to be very easy to identify with in our own day today, and that was racial hatred. And what's interesting is that the racial hatred of the ancient world, at least as I was able to discern from the resources that I was using, was not so much a, a racial hatred that had anything to do with skin color, we might say, but really in the ancient world, the Greeks really saw themselves as above who they called the barbarians. And so it's interesting that when you even uh, come to understand what that word barbarian means, to the Greek, when they heard the, a non-Greek speak, it sounded as though that person was saying bar, bar. And that's where barbarian came from. One uh, influential Greek man said this. He says, how can those who only bark rule the world? That was the kind of, that was the kind of view that they had of those who were not Greek. And so again, you have this, this class uh, this class hatred. You had this uh, this this uh, uh, this uh, racial hatred again, not so much on the on the basis of the color of skin, but on the basis of Greek and non-Greek. But you also had it manifested in another way. And again, you you had it manifested by way of religious hostilities. Now, this religious hostility, in one sense, is a very very sad thing to see. The, 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 the Jews saw themselves rightly as the, as the chosen people of God, but they did not handle that blessing in a right way. And rather than being a light to the nations, again, they, they, they failed in that. And then, of course, the, uh, the, the, the Gentiles, when they viewed the, the Jews, they saw them as very standoffish. And they saw them as very, as, again, you can, read, you, can read, you can read what we would call today anti-Semitic quotes as far back as the writing of Paul and even before that. This idea that the Jews were a despised people. And so this concept then of hatred is very, very easy for us to see and to understand. And so there was hatred, as I said before, among classes. There was hatred among races. There was hatred because of religious reasons as well. Isn't it a sad thing, however, when that element of hatred strikes even closer than, 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 the, than societies and it strikes uh, in, very, in families as well? How many times have we seen families who they say they, they, they can't stand their brother, they can't stand their sister? You have individuals, you have children, again, who have never been able to forgive a mother or father if they've wronged them. You've, have, you've, you've, had, you've had parents who have just gone to their grave, again, with, with this great antagonism or this great hatred toward their children. These things are wrong. And so, again, this idea of hatred as a work of the flesh is something, again, that's very, very easy to see and something, again, that what I hope to do here in a few moments is to show you the great antidote that the Scripture gives to us uh, concerning this particular work of the flesh. Well, the next work of the flesh that we see here in this passage of Scripture, in, in this passage of scripture oh, forgive me for a moment here. I, I can't believe that I've, I almost uh, left this off. The greatest manifestation of the, of, of the works of the flesh by way of hatred the greatest manifestation of that is man's, are you ready for this, is man's natural hatred for God. Man's natural hatred for God. Now that might be surprising to some of you. And some of you might think, I've never, I've never, I've never said that I hated God. And maybe some of you, and maybe most of us have never heard somebody say flat out, I hate God. But again, what we see in the, in, in the book of Romans, when Paul writes Romans chapter, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, what does he say? For the natural mind is enmity against God. The natural mind is in hostility toward God. 
And so there is this aversion in the very nature of man that keeps God at best at an arm's length. I remember one time I was talking to my brother and we were talking about, uh, this is going back maybe 10 years ago when, when the quote-unquote new atheists were having uh, kind of a field day in society in the, in the philosophical and the religious world. And my brother was making a con uh, comment and I thought, it was, I thought it was humorous but accurate at the same time. He says, yeah, they don't believe in God but they hate him anyway. And this is the natural manifestation of the heart of man. And this is the natural manifestation of the heart of man. There is this hostility in man by nature toward God. Remember when, when, uh, when it comes to uh, that idea of our Lord Jesus Christ ruling over his people. What is the response of the heart? We will not have this man rule over us. Preach the gospel and again emphasize rightly that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And there's a hesitancy oftentimes on people to again fully submit to the Lordship of Christ in all of life. And so again, this hostility uh, that is in the, in the heart of man by nature. Even the church has to be warned of, warned of this. Do you remember what James says in James chapter 4, verse 4? Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity or hostility toward God? And whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God? And stop and think. This is, this is, what, this is what this good man James has to preach to a congregation. He has to call out the congregation again for this, for this affection that they have for the world. And he has to say to them, don't you know that, that love over friendship of the world is being an enemy of God? And so again, these things must be said. This is the, this is the, this is the, 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 the root, this is the depth of this animosity that is in the heart, not only toward our fellow man, not, and not only toward those who are closest to us, not only to the society we live in, class, class, religious, and all these other things, no, this animosity even shows itself against God. And so I ask you here this morning, here you are again. I think most of us here, if not all of us here, are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this? Do you love God this morning? Amen. 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 This has to be said, you see. Amen. And again, why do I say that? Because this is, again, the telling issue of the heart. Where do my affections lie? And so again, in this passage of Scripture, this work of the flesh is that of hatred. What a sad reality within the heart of man. The next word that I want to bring to your attention here, that Paul lists here, by way of the social works of the flesh, or the works of the flesh that have social implications, is this word in the King James, this word variance. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a something of a strange word for us, isn't it? Uh, some of you might, if, if you're in any of the, uh, if you've bought a house or you're in the building trades, you might, you might, you might think of the word variance. Oh, I have to go down to the town hall to see if I can get a variance, you know, to put a fence up in such a place. You know, well, that's obviously, obviously not the word, uh, the meaning of the word here. The word variance, the word variance is an interesting word. It's the Greek word eris, E-R-I-S, and it is the word for strife and for conflict. And again, interestingly, the, the word eris is actually a name of a, of a Greek goddess. And she was the goddess of strife and of conflict. Uh, and so what you see here is that what Paul is making mention of here is this hatred now that manifests itself in strife. And that's one of the interesting things about these four classes or these four words here. One is kind of under the surface, the other gives expression. We're going to see the next, we're going to see the words three and four by way, of, by way of internal jealousies breaking out an outburst of anger or outburst of wrath. But here what you see, as I said before, you have this word, you have this word for strife, and that's what the word variance means. Now, again, as I said here, um, uh, so the, the, this word eris, E-R-I-S, uh, eris is a grim goddess. 
a rouser of armies, a producer of violence and death. Metaphoric, metaphorically, the word is used to describe one who is a lover of strife. And Christians, even Christians, must be warned against this mindset. You know that there are times within the church of Jesus Christ when, when we must take up uh, by way of, and I want to be careful how I say this, but we must, we must take up positions that must be upheld and defended. We must uh, affirm truth against error. We must, again, make sure that the truth of God is not in any way muted by some other type of authority or, or some other type of, a, of, of emotion or affection. How many times have we failed as the church of Jesus Christ when we've presented God as a God of love only? And we've left off some other reality of God's nature to us in the scripture where we see everything by way of his holiness and righteousness and yes, even wrath. And so again, there's a, there are times in the church when theological conflict must be engaged in. But we must do that very carefully. In a very real sense, we must make sure that we never lose sight of the overall picture, which is the glory of God, the presentation, the upholding of truth. But yet again, there are times when Theological conflict must be engaged in. But again, that's what we're not, that's not so much what we're talking about here. But we are, again, just making note of the fact that this idea of, 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 of strife and of, and of, and of conflict is a, is a work of the flesh. Now, there are people, maybe you know, maybe, maybe you're of this nature. I'm not trying to pick on anybody here. Maybe you're of this nature. Maybe you know of people that just like a good fight. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. You know, we know what it is, right? There's a there, there's there's there, there's a controversy coming up, or there's there's something there, and people just love that type of engagement. Now, I'm going to be careful how I say this. I think sometimes if 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 that if that is 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 part of 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 our of our thinking, part of our framework, if we do that in a way that never loses sight of the deference that we are to give to others, if we can engage honestly and openly in debate and in discovering, getting to a discovery of truth, I don't think that's a wrong thing in and of itself, but it can easily manifest itself in this sinful way that Paul was talking about here. It can manifest itself in this idea of strife and strife for the, uh, for the sake of strife, fighting for the, uh, for the sake of fighting. And so, again, we have to be very careful of this. And this is something, again, that we see in the world at large. But stop and think of what that would be if it manifests itself in the church in sinful ways. Stop and think of what it would be. And we all know what this is. We, 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 all, have our, 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 we all have views and positions that we hold to. Some of us may have uh, positions less theologically informed maybe than others do. And some of us may have theo uh, positions that are more informed than others are. And when we go about by way of, with, with an intention to, to bring conflict, that never serves well for the church, even though, and again, don't lose sight of what I said, there are times when we must engage these things. And there's a way to do it. Can I say it like this? There have been people in this congregation who have come and have spoken to me about things. And they've done it with the aim of the well-being of my soul. Not to tear down or destroy. And I hope and I pray that if the situation ever comes up where, where I must engage you, that I'll do it in a way not to, not to harm and destroy, not to show, again, who the authority is. That's, that's the word of God and, and God himself. But again, this idea, how are we going about these things, you see? And when this element of the 
works of the flesh, strife, errors, when it falls out into a congregation, it's not long before that congregation is going to be fractured and shattered. And as I said before, I'm so grateful. You know, this is, a, and, and I'm, not making, I'm not making a case for little congregations, but this is one of the benefits of, of a smaller congregation, although even smaller congregations are not exempt from that because we all know how, we, how we, can get our, we can get in the way of everything. Our personalities can really get in the way of everything. But thank God that, that, that we're not, again, uh, in, in that kind of a situation. But let us be aware that these things can easily crop up among us. And so this idea of strife. Listen to some of these passages where the apostle has to warn even the church about falling into this kind of sin, this idea of strife. In Romans chapter 13, verse 13, Paul says this, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, and not in strife. There's that word, strife and envy. Now, what we're going to see in these passages that I'm going to be quoting is that strife and envy oftentimes go together. They're very closely related, and uh, we're going to take a look at that in, uh, probably next week. But no, notice what, the, what Romans 13, verse 13 says in the, in the NIV. Again, the King James is using some of the archaic words, uh, chambering, wantonness. Uh, notice what it says in, uh, in uh, the NIV, Romans 13, verse 13. He says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. The word dissension there is that word for strife. And so again, what the Apostle Paul is saying to us, that is, it, is the, it is the natural outworking of the flesh to be given over to strife. Now, that might not be your primary, uh, the way that the, the works of the flesh primarily manifest themselves in your life, but you have to remember each and every one of us are prone to every one of the things that are listed here. Every one of us are prone to that. Why? Because of the sinful nature of our hearts. But thank God for regeneration. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says this, For it has been declared unto me, brethren, uh, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And again, there's that idea of strife again. There's that situation once again that what we are seeing here is that within a congregation, there is this contention, this strife. And as I said before, there are some people that are, that, that are given over to that by way of who, who and what their nature is. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you as I would, and that I shall be found unto you as such as you would not, lest there be, and here we go, listen, lest there be debates, envies, wrath, stripes, backbitings, whisperings, swelling, tumults. This is all within a church. This is all within a congregation. And so you see here again, even the church of Jesus Christ, we must be, this, this reality of this aspect of the work of the flesh must be set before us. And so again, there is so much there for then this idea of the uh, of strife. One more thing about strife before we move on is that strife is one of the marks of the unconverted world. In Romans chapter one verse twenty nine, Paul says this: "Being uh, uh, this is from the ESV, uh, they they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit." And so again, it's the mark of the world. And that's why it's such a sub-Christian manifestation of who and what we are when that type of strife enters into the church. Do you want this little congregation to be that place when you're at that, when you're at that door, your stomach is in knots because of who you have to deal with when you walk on this side of the door? No. Is that what you want? Of course not. 
Why would you want that? Why? And if, can I challenge you? Can I challenge myself? Can I challenge every one of you? Why would we want to be that type of person that causes the other person to have those kind of uh, uh, gyrations going on in their stomach? Let us be a place, again, where the love of Christ is seen and manifested and experienced. Yeah. And so, again, Paul is warning against uh, this, uh, this element uh, of strife. The next thing that we see here by way of these works of the flesh, and we are going to be getting to the antidotes of this. The next thing that we see here is this uh, the concept here of, uh, of what the King James says, emulation. And the word there is really in our new translations brought out properly as jealousies, uh, this, the idea of jealousy. Now, jealousy, this word for, for emulation is from a Greek word, which is interesting because it can be used in a positive sense, but it oftentimes degenerates into a negative sense. And in a positive sense, what it means, it means to be zealous for something. And sometimes it's used of uh, the very relation that God has toward his people and God has by way of accomplishing his purposes. We read in Isaiah chapter 9 how that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform the, the, the fulfillment of the promises to bring uh, Messiah into the world. Into the, world. the zeal of the Lord of hosts, Isaiah uh, chapter 9 verses 6 through 7. David again was very zealous for the house of God. He says in, uh, in Psalm 69, verse 9, the zeal of, thy, uh, the zeal of thine house has, has eaten me up. And again, whenever there, were, whenever there were reproaches upon God or the people of God, David was very zealous in protecting them. And so the word zeal can have a positive, uh, positive implication. But in this passage, obviously, it is referring to that negative, that sinful aspect of jealousy. And jealousy, again, is that sin that, again, so many of us has experienced, have experienced in one way, shape, or form. And I want to say something about this word uh, jealousy and, and how we can have a proper zeal for something without it degenerating into a sinful jealousy. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad that, uh, that, that the younger people are here today. And the reason why is because I want you to understand that by way of this uh, word zeal or uh, jealousy, there is a sense in which the word zeal can be used in such a way as to motivate us <clears throat> to be better than what we are in light of who another person is. So that when I see, and it happens all the time, <laughs> You're gonna, this will be humorous here in a minute, it happens all the time. When I listen to preachers who are definitely better preachers than I am, I want to I wanna, I wanna emulate. I, not so much I want to be patterned after them, but I want to be a better preacher. I want to know what it is to preach fully in the power of the Spirit of God. I want to know what it is, again, to set Christ before his people in such a way that they love Christ more. And so that from the standpoint of, of a preacher, but maybe maybe a young athlete. Maybe you see somebody who's maybe has natural uh, is, is more naturally gifted than you are. Maybe you see somebody again who's who's been able to accomplish much than you. Now you can you can approach that in one of two ways. You can be that individual, I can be that guy that always looks for an opportunity to tear that one who is better to tear him down. Oh yeah, you know, if he had the things that if he had to go through the things I had to go through, he'd never be able to do that. Well, you know, he's, he's only that because he's got everything going in his favor. Oh, yeah, he's only that because he's the coach's favorite. That, that, that's what sinful jealousy does. Sinful jealousy seeks to tear the other person down rather than seeing in the other person, if I can say it this way, something for which I can, by way of the fullness of the gifts and the opportunities and abilities that God has given, given me, to use that individual as a mark to which I can say, look, I can, I can strive for that. 
And if God so worked grace in my life that I, that I accomplish more, then again, it's nothing I'm going to boast about. It's just what God has been able to give me the ability to do. So this word, again, for, for, for jealousies is a very important word. Now, again, stop and think of what it looks like in the life of the congregation. All right? So here I am maybe as the preacher. Maybe some of you men are gifted better, more gifted than I am to, to, to preach. And I get all mad and upset. Maybe we get a guest speaker. I hope you don't mind me being so, so blunt here. Maybe we get a, a guest speaker in here. That guy's preaching up a storm. I think to myself, man, I can never preach like that. Then I said, well, you know, if that guy wasn't having to do this and have to do that, if he didn't. And what kind of thing is that? But again, what I want you to see is that that's the negative aspect of this word jealousy. And that's what we have to be worried of. That's what we have to be careful of. And so when it comes to the life of a congregation, there are gifts in this body. You know that. And some of you have gifts that you excel in. And I hope and I pray that whatever those gifts are, you don't look at another person who may have equal gifts or even better gifts. And somehow, some way, you look down on them. Or you think, well, again, you know, they, everybody just thinks that they're the best one at that. Don't let that, that's, that, that's what the manifestation of the works of the flesh by way of jealousy, that's how they show themselves. And to stop and think of what that means to a congregation. How long will it be before, right, we have this jealousy? How long will it be before before we have these outbursts of wrath? When the pressure builds up and everything's going against me and I've tried my best. And oh, you know, then one more thing happens and, 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 and I just blow up as a response to it. These things again are why these works of the flesh are so detrimental in the life of a congregation. Now, let me say this by way of this idea of jealousy, and I think this is, very, this is a very important uh, a gauge uh, to determine how we are responding uh, when we see um, someone of, of the same gifts or the same talents, the same abilities. Jealousy, emulation, or jealousy or emulation, now this is very important, is grieved not because the other has good or is doing good, but because I don't have it. It's not so much that they have it. The, the problem is that I don't have it. In the good sense, this may lead me to improve in order to attain. But too often it leads me to tear down the other person so that he does not possess what I desire. A really good, uh, a really good um, uh, test. Uh, well, we'll just leave that off for now. So again, you see that you see this idea of where jealousy can go. And you must remember that jealousy as a work of the flesh, we are all prone to it. Now, none of us might be in a situation where, where that particular sinful tendency is sparked within us because there's no maybe competing reality that we have to deal with. But you must remember again that it's a part of our fallen nature to respond that way. And stop and think, now I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here because... That idea of how we respond uh, to this particular aspect of the work of the flesh in a gracious way, it can actually be beneficial. It can be what we read in the scripture where iron sharpens iron, where those um, around you who are better than you bring out the best in you and maybe even <coughs> allow you to attain something that you thought you never could attain in your own strength. But by way of that prodding, and by way of that example, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. But this idea, again, of these uh, jealousies are, are very, uh, are, 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 are very they're, they're more common than what we might uh, want to admit to. You know, oftentimes, uh, uh, again, I've been speaking about our little congregation. You know, oftentimes, uh, one of the things that I think that we have to fight, or maybe I should say I have to fight, one of the things that's a reality there, do we fall into these jealousies about sister churches that we hear that are, that are doing well? 
Uh, that sister church, maybe again, starting out just like us, but in a matter of years, that God has really blessed them. Do we get do we get jealous of them? Do we do we get put off by that? Are we are we somewhat? We would never say it. We would always say again, I'm so happy for so and so. But but internally, how do we feel about that? And again, these are the things that we have to be careful about, as I said. But what if that sister church, right? What if that sister church whom God blessed was a church that we would look at and say, hey, you know what? This is what happened over there. And couldn't we in the same kind of way? And maybe God would bless us in the same thing. And yet at the same time, being content with however God works within us. But again, I'm, I'm getting much to application here right now. So there are these, uh, uh, there, there, we can be guilty of this type of jealousy um, when we see the success of sister churches. Uh, this, uh, this, this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this work of the flesh can uh, manifest itself in what I would call petty jealousies. And you know those, these little petty jealousies. It's, and you almost, when you catch yourself doing, you almost say to yourself, grow up. What am I doing here? Why am, I, why am I getting in? Why am I going along that pattern of thinking? Has no, there's, there's, there's nothing that brings glory to God by thinking that way. These works of the flesh you see. And then the last work of the flesh that we have manifested here is that of the uh, what the King James says, uh, wrath. What your newer translations probably say, either outburst of anger or outburst of wrath. That's that is really capturing the idea here, because the the, the word here for wrath is not. There are two words for wrath. Uh, used in the, uh, in, 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 the, in the New Testament anyway. One word for wrath is that settled uh, disposition uh, that really is, not, is, is really not easily moved. In one sense, God's wrath against sin is a settled disposition against all that which is contrary to his holy nature. The, that's not the word that's used here. The word you, that's used here is a word that speaks about the outburst of wrath, the outburst of anger. It's, it's more of, a, of an emotional word, we might say, although not always used in exclusively an emotional way. But this idea of this outburst of wrath, stop and think of what we've just seen. You've had this, this, this petty jealousy building up, and now you have this outburst of wrath. And this outburst of wrath is a very, very dangerous thing. And it's dangerous because, again, uh, this is another, it's dangerous because, again, a, a person can be, can be destroyed by their own wrath. Stop and think of how many times we see, we've seen it on the news, we've, 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 we've maybe observed it, how many, maybe we've been a part of it, how many times we've been driving along. And you know where I'm going next with this, right? The classic road rage things. And, and maybe, maybe if, 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 it, if it manifests itself in us having to bite our tongue, that's one thing. But how many times have we, have we heard, we've read, we've seen on the news, People have killed other people and not intending to kill other people uh, because of it. Maybe they just thought they could do something, give a little uh, hit with the car. And before you know it, the car is careening off and somebody dies. There's, there's a, how many times, again, people come out uh, of their car and before you know it, somebody is dead. Wrath can be a destroyer in that way. But what I want you to see here again is wrath is one of these interesting words again. Because, because it too... The word that's used here can be used in a positive sense. Now, don't get me wrong. Sinful wrath is never positive. But we've all heard the term righteous indignation. And what one of the authorities, what one of the you know, dictionaries have to say about this word wrath, this outburst of anger, we have to be careful here, but I, I, you need to hear this. It can describe a quality which out with no good character can flourish. However, it can describe a quality that is a record of personal relationships, 
and destruction of fellowship within a society. It can mean indignation in the face of what is wrong. A good man in noble passion opposes the wrong and takes his stand against the wicked. Now that's an element of virtue that is lacking in our day. It grieves, it grieves me when I see the wicked much bolder in their wickedness than the righteous bold in righteousness. It embarrasses me when in a good and proper sense I see in the church of Jesus Christ women standing up and men being dumbfounded and silent. And women standing up making a case for the glory of God. It, I, it happens. And here we and here the, and men just dumb sitting on her, and I mean dumb in the sense of not being able to sitting on her hands. It shouldn't happen. Men, we should be the ones who are taking the stand for the glory of God and for the honor of his name and for righteousness in our day. May God, may God so inspire us that way. But this word again, the word here again, it's one of these words. It can be used in a simple way. It can be used, it can have positive elements to it. And so I, again, I just want you to be aware of that. But in, in here in the passage, Paul is definitely using it in a way that we must be careful of because it is a, it is a work of the flesh. It's that outburst of wrath. It's that idea of road rage, as I said before. It's that, it's, that, it's, it's, that, it's that response that we get when people are just getting on our nerves and under our skin, and before you know it, we're blowing up on them. That's what Paul is speaking about here. So we've mentioned every one of these sins, every one of these manifestations of the works of the flesh. I want to show you now the, the, antidote, the antidote to each and every one of these. And what's beautiful in this passage of Scripture is that in the passage of Scripture, embedded in the very context that Paul is talking about, is the very antidote to each and every one of these works of the flesh. And the first thing I want you to do is go back now to Galatians chapter 5 and look at verses 13 and following. Um, yeah, um, well, I'm sorry, let's go from verses uh, 15 and 16. I'm sorry. Look at verses 15 and 16. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one another. There is that congregational warning. Now listen again, verse 16. And this I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Do you get what Paul is doing here? The, the, the listing of the sins of the flesh have been set before so that we can see them for what we are. But the way that we overcome them isn't by way of, human, uh, by way of exerting human willpower. The way that we do it is by living in the Spirit. And by way of living in the Spirit or walking in the Spirit, I want you to see that the antidotes are given to us in the next list that Paul gives in verses 22 and following when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we've talked about hatred, did we not? And what's the, and what, what's the contrary to hatred? It's that love that Paul speaks about, which is a work of the, which is, which is a fruit, which is the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. But in the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I want you to see that this love that God plants within our heart is a love, yes, that extends itself on the horizontal level within our congregational life. And if I can say it, it, uh, it, uh, it, 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 it extends itself within our congregational life, but it also extends to God himself. This is one of the great fruits. This is one of the great uh, 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 realities of the fruit of the Spirit being developed within us. We have a love for God, for who he is. We have a love for God as he is, as the Father to us, as the Son and the Spirit of God. We love God because he first loved us. We love Jesus Christ even though, even though we've not yet seen him. We love him in, in, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We love by way of the Spirit of God, shedding abroad the love of God within our hearts. 
And so again, the greatest manifestation of that of that of the work of the flesh, which was hostility toward God, is overcome by way of regeneration and the work of the Spirit within us, producing the love of God, producing love for God, but love for our fellow man as well. How many times do we read in the passages of Scripture over and over again, love one another? First Peter chapter one verse twenty-two: Love one another fervently with a pure heart. You see, love. You see, this is the thing that we're called to, and it's not a love again that doesn't stand up against the wrong. That would, be a, that would be a caricature of love. It's the type of love that we see too much in our own day, where people are not willing to stand for that which is right. And so again, this idea, the great antidote is love. Now all these, all these, all these particular, all these particular uh, 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 manifestations of the sins of the flesh uh, have their, their contrast you know, primarily in the work of the Spirit producing his fruit within us, but also either by way of the direct example of Christ or the teaching of Christ or what Christ has, has done on our behalf as, as, as an antidote to these things. And when it comes to this matter of hate, I would suggest to you that the, at least in, in one spot among many that we see, our Lord is giving us the antidote when he says to us as his followers in John 15, 17, these things I command you that you love one another. What greater command do you and I need by way of having a mutual love one for another in this congregation? Amen. What greater love do you and I need to have a, have a love for our family, for our wives, and for our children? Yeah. And so again, this command, you see, God is not leaving us just with descriptive terms here and saying, oh, well, do the best you can. No, the Spirit of God is working in each and every one of us. And so again, we see the, the reality of this love of God. Now, what about strife? What is the, what is the contrast to strife? Well, we see it there in the, in the listing of the fruit of the Spirit, don't we? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. That's the contrast. Rather than this strife, rather than this love of contention, rather than this, this love of conflict, what we have this desire for, this love for is peace. Now, let me say this. I'm convinced that peace is, is, is one of the most prized of all human experiences. To have this peace that, that resides within our heart and soul. And that's what we have in the gospel. For those of you that were here with us last Lord's Day evening, we preached from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10. And God is saying to, to his people, again, I have established a covenant, my covenant of peace I will not take away. And one of the things that we looked at is that that, that covenant of peace is a covenant of peace because we, it gives us personal peace, but it also gives us peace with God. And that's the primary thing. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The great passage in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, having therefore been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Do you have peace with God this morning? Amen. You have peace with God by way, of the, by way of the reality that in the depths of your soul, you know that whatever else goes on, that you are in a right situation with God. And so this idea then of peace. Again, this peace is, 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 is Trinitarian as well. We can say this, we have peace with God, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We have that great passage of Scripture where Christ is our peace. We also have, again, uh, the, the Spirit of God bringing peace into our souls. And so here we have these things. And, our, and again, getting to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, how the Spirit and our Lord Jesus Christ give to us these antidotes. And what does our Lord Jesus Christ say? Blessed are the peacemakers. Again, for they shall be called the children of God. Are there peacemakers in this congregation, you see? And I don't mean peacemakers by, yeah, it's good if you can be peacemakers out there in the world, but in this congregation, are you doing everything again to encourage one another, to warm one another's hearts, not in a, not in a phony way, but in a genuine way? And so again, this idea of peace. Well, what about jealousy? What's the antidote for jealousy? 
Can I suggest, although it's not found here in the, in the list that Paul gives by way of the fruit of the Spirit, can I suggest to you that, 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 uh, that jealousy is contrasted with the great contentment that God gives to his people in Jesus Christ? Amen. What does the Apostle Paul say? He says, I have learned in all things to be content in whatsoever state I am. You know, it's interesting that the contentment has to be learned, doesn't it? Contentment is first and foremost a, a gift or a grace of God, but it's, a, but it's a grace that has to be, if I can say it this way, improved on. We must learn what it is to be content in those situations that God has given to us. And I'm saying to you again, God is able to do these things. This idea of contentment, though, is, 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 is a wonderful reality that will really keep us from falling into sinful jealousy. How can I fall into sinful jealousy when I believe that I have all things necessary for me in Christ? Remember again the passage of scripture I so often quote, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He that gave he that delivered his own son for us, how shall you not also with him freely give us all things? Paul says, All things are yours, he says, in Christ. And so this idea, again, it gives us a contentment. And this becomes significant. If I can go back again, like I was saying earlier, this becomes significant. Because here, again, I'm able to understand that God has given to me a certain measure of grace and a certain measure of gifts. And if I, by the grace of God, if you, by the grace of God, live up to all that that God has given to you, and you see somebody else exceeding or excelling you, how can you be upset at that? And again, this, this idea that all grace, all, all, every grace necessary for the things that God has called me to, he gives it to me. My, even my station and calling in life is given to me by God. So why should I be upset or jealous of a person who, in my mind, I think is outstripping or doing better than I am? This, again, if I can say it this way, this should never keep us from, from falling into this complacency where, it's, it, where the complacency is more like laziness than it is like contentment. Laziness, again, must be a we, we must throw off laziness. Again, we mu that must not be marked among the people of God. But to engage our lives to the fullness of the gifts and the graces God has given to us. Embrace that and live up to that. And see what God does. And so, and so the contrast then to this jealousy is, again, uh, that contentment. I think of an example of this uh, given to us in the gospel in the life of John the Baptist. If you know anything about the, the development of the, uh, of the gospel of John, one of the things that we see is that early on in the gospel of John, John the Baptist is genuinely the bright light in the early part of the gospel of John. And then when our Lord Jesus Christ comes on the scene and he realizes again, he knows again, the one on, on whom you see the Spirit descend, the Spirit given without measure is the one who is sent, is the Messiah. And John doesn't get petty about this. John, again, what does he say? He must increase and I must decrease. And you know what's wonderful and what's beautiful about that? John is quick, again, to place himself in that right uh, relation with the Lord Jesus Christ. But then later on in the Gospels, what do we see Jesus saying about John? He says, there's never been a prophet like him. Again, he, he, our Lord Jesus Christ, if I can say it this way, he, he, he exalts John to the fullness of his status and position. And there's a sense in which when we learn what it is to be content in Christ, these things will all fall into place for us. And so here we see this contrast then between uh, jealousy and contentment. And then one more thing that we see here, what would be the, what would be the contrast of, uh, of wrath, at least that we see as we see it here in, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and following? It would be what the King James calls temperance or what our newer translations call self-control. Self-control. You know, wrath is that outburst of anger. 
It's that, uh, again, it's that expression of rage in a moment. And the great antidote to that, again, is given to us in the gospel by the development of the Spirit of God, of the fruit within our lives, is this thing of self-control. This word for self-control, we'll get to it when we get to the uh, fruit of the Spirit. I just want to say one thing about it. The word for, for self-control here is a, it, it's, it's a compound word. Uh, one, one element of the word has to do with the idea or the, uh, the concept of getting a grip. Uh, and so the idea of temperance is having a grip on something. How many times have we heard the expression, hey, get a grip on yourself? Somebody's falling apart, we say, get a grip on yourself. And that idea of self-control here now is this. It's that ability that God gives through the Spirit of God to not give in to these sinful outbursts of wrath. Now, again, we see a number of kind of illustrations of this in the Scripture. The danger of wrath. Proverbs, you know, or I should say it this way, the, the blessing of, of self-control. Proverbs 16.32, uh, he, uh, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that rules his spirit better than he that taketh a, uh, a city. And so again, what we're seeing in this, pa in, in, in this passage of Scripture with these four elements of the social aspect of these uh, works of the flesh, what we're seeing here is that there is a gospel antidote for each and every one of them. And what I'm calling you to do is to look to those antidotes. If you or I find ourselves, again, plagued by any expression of these works of the flesh, let us confess them before God and let us go to those places in Scripture where we see the antidote that God in Christ has given to us. I just want to bring out a couple of passages here in closing. I want you to see again that this idea of of, of, of social and congregational sins are very, very important. Do you remember in the gospel accounts when on two occasions, two different occasions, when the disciples say, which one of us is going to be the greatest? They had that, that, that dialogue. Bad enough it happens once, but it happens twice. And what does our Lord Jesus do? He gets a child and he sits, he sits the child down in the midst of them and says, he that will be like a child is first in the kingdom of heaven. And what I want to say to you then is this. I want us to engage our congregational life from that perspective where we esteem others better than ourselves, where for the glory of God we engage one another in genuine and true Christian love. None of this, none of this phony kind of stuff, but real genuine love one for another. You may think that there is a particular, and there is a particular tenacity to every one of those works of the flesh. There is. We're all prone to it. But there is a greater grace given in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the development of the fruit of the Spirit within each and every one of us. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, this little congregation can be a piece of heaven on earth. Why would we have it any, why would we have it anyway, any, anyway other than that? May God give us grace. Our Father and our God, thank you for the patience of your people, Lord, uh, in this uh, somewhat long uh, sermon. Give us grace now, we pray, Lord, uh, to see within uh, our souls that development of the fruit that you have given to us by way of the work of your Spirit. So, Father, do these things, we pray, and may we bring glory to your name in all of this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.